Welcome to this podcast discussing some of the key trials and debates in breast cancer, presented at the St. Gallen Breast Cancer Conference 2023. In this episode, we'll be covering some of the latest updates from early treatments to post-adjuvant therapy. We'll be hearing from leading experts on when chemo, immuno and radiotherapy are most appropriate, as well as a taste of the ethical considerations of clinical trial recruitment. The importance of this conference in translating research to clinical developments seems like a good place to get started. Professor Philip Putmans of the Oncology Centre GZA, Tim Augustinus, will take it from here. I'm always looking forward to the St. Gallen meeting because in contrast to many of the scientific meetings about breast cancer, this goes beyond. It's not really the presentation of the most novel data and the discussion, but it is how to apply what we learned into clinical practice. So St. Gallen is more than many other meetings, what to do next Monday. So the St. Gallen offers you an overview with a great representation of uh, scientists and clinical researchers worldwide. They give you an overview of what is available, what do we know, and even when level one, sometimes even level two evidence is not uh, available, we search for a consensus, a consensus around what with the current stage of development and knowledge we can offer our patients of today, starting next Monday. Now to kick off a technical talk, early breast cancer and whether chemotherapy is a smart choice in a low genomic, high clinical risk population is discussed by Dr. Lisa Carey of UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Uh, the debate was a, a lot of fun. Um, it is a controversial area, um, and, and basically we talked about two arenas. Um, to my mind, the studies looked at a particular population for use of genomic tests in order to omit chemotherapy. That was the topic that we, we talked about. Um, very high-risk patients, very young patients, for example, under 40. Uh, patients with multiple involved nodes, patients with locally advanced cancers were really not studied in these in the um, seminal trials. And so the, to my mind, and my argument was that there really isn't a good use of genomic tests in that setting. We also talked about the uh, premenopausal node positive data. We now have three trials that all found no advantage to chemotherapy um, in postmenopausal women who have moderately high clinical risk and, and low genomic test results. Um, uh, but in the premenopausal patients, there didn't appear to be much of, an, of a usefulness of the tests. And so we had an active discussion about ways to manage that and the reasons for it, which might relate to ovarian function suppression, but that doesn't seem to fully explain it. Uh, or it may relate to the biology of the cancer. And, and uh, Dr. Harbeck was the other debater. And you know the WSG group has done several trials where they tried to add to genomic understanding through doing um, uh, exposure, brief exposure to endocrine therapy and an in vivo endocrine sensitivity testing with key 67 as a marker. And she talked a lot about the potential for that to be a way forward. An interesting alternative to chemotherapy that has been picking up steam in research is immunotherapy. Dr. Marlene Koch of the Netherlands Cancer Institute talks on predicting the responses to immunotherapy in breast cancer using multiplex analysis and spatial histology. 
The topic of my talk was spatial analysis in breast cancer to predict outcome on, uh, on immunotherapy. And it's really early days. If you really look at spatial analysis in relation to immunotherapy, only a few papers. So what I did in my talk, I provided like some basic principles on, on spatial analysis. So basically on the technologies and whether the technologies are on DNA, RNA or protein level and, and what exactly what it's doing. So what the spatial analysis in a nutshell is doing, it's not only providing information on you know, what kind of cells are present, but on two other things. How are cells related to each other? Are they really close to each other? Or is there a big difference? Or is there a certain you know, barrier between cells, for example? That's one aspect. And also, you can have information by using spatial analysis on the cell state. So do you have a, a T cell can sit in a tumor, but can also do nothing. So is your T cell, for example, active and able to kill a cancer cell? So those are really the advantages of, of spatial analysis. What I did next in my talk is, you know, discuss some, some landmark papers on spatial analysis, um, either protein levels or uh, spatial transcomics in, in the breast cancer field and what it could yield. Then I provided a snapshot on where the field of immunotherapy stands, so looking at studies in melanoma, uh, sarcoma, for example, or lung cancer. And then I provided some information on, uh, you, know, you know, examples of how it could uh, be used for breast cancer patients. And regarding to that later topic, so there are now, uh, I think, four trials that reported some spatial information, and they said it's really early days. But we've seen in the metastatic setting two trials in Passion 130, as well as in the tonic trial, that the spatial organization of the T cells, or the CD8 T cells, uh, could matter. So those patients where the T cells are really in the tumor and not only in the border, they have better outcome on immunotherapy for metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients. In the early setting, we've seen some data in the iSpy, uh, but it didn't show a particular pattern in terms of cell organization and outcome on, on permalusumab. However, I think the most advanced data is coming from the NeoTrip study. So an Italian study where they used chemo plus immunotherapy. And they really elegantly showed, for example, that it really matters where your B cells are and where the plasma cells are, because those seem to be determining the response to, to immunotherapy. So in summary, we have bits and pieces of data of complex technology, and, but I have high expectations in the coming year we'll see more um, in that field. Um, you know, papers on technology, but also papers on really addressing the question, can spatial technologies help in selecting patients for immunotherapy outcome? But it will be the far future before we can use it uh, in the clinic. With that talk in mind, let's hear Dr. Hope S. Rugo of Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Centre on the optimal near adjuvant and adjuvant therapy choices for patients with early triple negative breast cancer. In triple negative breast cancer, we've made a lot of progress as well. Not quite as much progress as HER2 positive disease, but uh, there are a number of different areas of interest. I think now with the most recent trials, the Brightness trial and a trial from uh, Tata Memorial Hospital in India, we've really solidified the role of carboplatin in combination with paclitaxel followed by an anthracycline cyclophosphamide combination chemotherapy uh, for the optimal chemotherapy backbone for patients with at least stage two triple negative breast cancer. 
We haven't really made progress in the optimal therapy for smaller triple negative breast cancers. Should you use platinum or not uh, with a T1C versus T1A and B? What's the smallest size tumor that needs treatment? We don't really have the answers to that question um, overall, although in general, very small tumors are the tumors where we might not need chemotherapy at all. Uh, but with that backbone of chemotherapy, uh, there's a number of other questions. So uh, one is, is there an alternate if you have, for example, a germline BRCA mutation. There is some very intriguing data with uh, a, the PARP inhibitor talizoprib as neoadjuvant therapy. That hasn't been pursued further, but hopefully in the future it will be with the no, new uh, generation PARP inhibitors. And then, of course, we have the Olympia trial, which showed that olaparib in patients who have at least stage 2 triple negative breast cancer or residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy uh, improves survival compared to not giving olaparib. And then, of course, we have Keno 522 that showed a significant improvement, not just in PCR, but event-free and distant recurrence-free survival with pembrolizumab. Again, with that chemotherapy backbone with the platinum taxane followed by anthracycline cyclophosphamide um, in patients who had at least stage two uh, triple negative breast cancer, I think solidifying a number of things, the importance of immunotherapy, it's an approved treatment. Uh, the second is also, it, I think, emphasizing how important it is to treat in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, because now we can answer the next question, which is in patients who didn't have a pathologic complete response, how can we escalate therapies? And in patients who did have PCR, do they really need to have a whole nother six months of pembrolizumab? We've also been aware of a number of different factors that PDL1 is not required for the benefit of pembrolizumab in the neoadjuvant setting, but it does predict better response overall. Those patients have a higher PCR rate. Um, that stage, the more burden of disease that you have, uh, the lower your PCR rate, the worse EFS, and the greater benefit from the checkpoint inhibitor, which is also interesting, suggests a synergy with the uh, sort of relative tumor suppression of the host immune response. Um, and then also we've learned about immune toxicity. So there's more immune toxicity when you combine the checkpoint inhibitor with chemo versus giving the checkpoint inhibitor alone in the adjuvant setting. And we really need to be educated and aware and make our patients and uh, providers aware of the toxicity so we can recognize them earlier and treat them early, which is so important to avoid significant morbidity. But there are toxicities that are lifelong, the endocrine toxicity, some skin toxicities, and others. Um, then the next step is really where do we go from here from those treatments? And uh, one is to look at non-anthracycline-based chemotherapy regimens. There's been good PCR rates with uh, docetaxel carboplatin uh, and then docetaxel carboplatin with Pembro. So there is a, a randomized trial in the cooperative group, very large, over 2,000 patients looking at that regimen with Pembro versus the standard Keynote 522 with Pembro. Tumor infiltrating lymphocytes are of great interest. Maybe we can identify a group of patients who need less therapy or even no therapy based on the data we have who have very high TILs. And there is a study, NeoTract, as well as others, that is looking at uh, stratifying treatment based on uh, TILs in the tumor sample. So that will be fascinating. And then another direction is to look at uh, therapy alter altering therapy based on response in the neoadjuvant setting rather than waiting for the surgical uh, response. And so iSPY 2.2, an adaptively randomized multi-arm phase two study that is in many centers in the United States, 
um, and it run out of our institution, uh, is a trial that now is looking at uh, these gene signatures for response to immunotherapy and DNA damaging agents and randomizing patients based on a number of different biologic factors and gene signatures uh, to receive different experimental therapies initially for 12 weeks. And then based on that response, which is carefully evaluated by imaging and biopsies, you could either escalate or de-escalate and go directly to surgery. So in that way, you're really individualizing the intensity of treatment uh, based on response and trying to optimize the response in the patients who have uh, not as good a response up front. So that's a very exciting area. And then lastly, uh, these cell-free DNA or circulating tumor DNA is another uh, sort of future uh, approach where you might be able to change therapy based on clearance of ctDNA or not. There's some very early data that suggests that this may be a useful tool. Treatment options for after-adjuvant therapy were also discussed. Here's Dr. Arit Kader-Pearson of Shiva Medical Center talking on axillary dissection versus axillary radiation as options for post-adjuvant therapy treatment. Currently, the standard of care in patients who have uh, residual disease within the nodes after primary systemic therapy is axillary lymph node dissection. And there is a background why this is currently the standard of care because studies have shown that over 60% of those patients uh, who have uh, a positive sentinel lymph node, regardless of the tumor burden within that sentinel lymph node, whether it's a micrometastasis or a micrometastasis, will have residual nodal disease at time of axial lymph node dissection. So if we omit this procedure, it is possible that we are leaving their disease in over 60% of the patients. But we shown in the debate that um, residual disease is not similar to every patient. Some patients with residual disease won't have a high risk for regional recurrence. And uh, since we have now better imaging for patients, we can diagnose them actually at an earlier stage or earlier tumor burden. And some of the patient might not completely benefit from axial lymph node dissection. So we have a, a few ongoing randomized control trials trying to prove this point because we want, we all know that the aim is to cure breast cancer patients. So we need to be very cautious before we change the standard of care. And finally, an interesting question has been raised about why we are conducting clinical trials in countries that are unlikely to be able to afford innovative drugs. Dr. Sarah Tulaney of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute had an interesting take on this. So I reviewed why we're conducting trials of innovative drugs in countries that may not have access to them. And I think overall what we've learned is that moving trials outside of high-income countries uh, has been a very uh, prominent way that we've been running trials, particularly over the last several years where we're now running many of our trials in low and upper middle income countries. And while I think this has been tremendous um, to be able to get access of novel therapies across the globe earlier, I think what we've learned is there are some challenges with doing this because there are some concerns about infrastructure across the globe, as well as some ethical concerns that can arise uh, when conducting uh, trials um, in different patient populations. 
Overall, I think right now what we know is about one third of all trials that are run by high income countries are being conducted in low and upper middle income countries. But these studies are not uniformly distributed across the globe. They are being conducted in particular countries around the world and are omitting some regions where it has been more challenging to run trials. But some of the reasons that we are doing this is one, clearly speed uh, is a major incentive because if you run a global trial, you get a large number of sites, you get very broad patient populations, um, which allows sponsors of these trials to be able to complete them very quickly, which obviously has some financial incentive. But on the flip side of things, we've learned that the regulatory components surrounding these trials in high income countries are quite challenging. And this makes the incentive to run trials in high income countries a little bit lower for many sponsors and hence the need to move to, to low uh, middle income countries. It's also been important because it's allowed us to enroll diverse patient populations. And we know patients of different races and ethnicities, for example, can have different metabolisms of drugs and experience different toxicities. So being able to study these drugs across diverse populations is actually quite critical. It also allows us to address some questions when we have a very rapidly changing standard of care environment um, to be able to enroll uh, patients who may be naive to some drugs in other countries as we begin to, to understand how all these drugs work. So I think there, there are lots of reasons uh, that these trials are being conducted, but I think it's important that we continue this movement because we do know that you know, cancer is a prevalent problem across the globe. It is not just a problem in high income countries and mortality rates are higher often in these low middle income countries. So we need to move towards that. But I, I think we need to figure out ways to do this better uh, by building infrastructure, training investigators across the globe. And hopefully by doing this, we'll allow for patients not even on clinical trials, those people receiving standard of care, I think will also experience better care as we are better able to train healthcare providers and improve the infrastructure. So hopefully uh, this is a good path forward and it will help improve cancer mortality worldwide. That concludes our roundup of key talks at the St. Gallen Breast Cancer Conference. Not enough for you? Check out bjoncology.com for more from this conference and all the oncology updates. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you don't miss the next one by subscribing on your podcast app of choice. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for the freshest of updates and the hottest of takes on all things oncology. Stay tuned for more podcasts from the forefront of oncology research with BJ Oncology.